This Thanksgiving weekend, I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm going to preach a message that I have shared here at least three times during my tenure. Not because I have suddenly become senile, (laughs) though I reserve the right to do that sometime in the future. Not because it's a holiday weekend and not because I can't come up with new material. God's Word is chock full of new material. I'm repeating this message for three reasons. Reason number one, most spiritual truth bears repeating because the challenges to implementing that truth just keep on coming. Have you noticed how often the New Testament writers say, put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old, put on the new. Spiritual truth bears repeating. Second, there is a strategic connection between this teaching and something that has been on our hearts and minds this past week, namely uninterrupted thanksgiving aimed towards our God. And third, during my 36 years here, this sermon, more than any other, has been referenced as having made a positive difference in someone's life. So with that, let me read the text. It records an event that unfolded shortly after the people of Israel witnessed what should have been a game-changing miracle. Should have been, but never was. They witnessed that miracle at the Red Sea. And as I read the narrative, I'm going to emphasize two phrases, one at the beginning and one midway through, for reasons I'll explain later. Our text is the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 14, the 31st verse, and then into chapter 15, the first two verses there. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang, They sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. I'm entitling this teaching, The Right Song the wrong side. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, as is always the case, today I've been commissioned to do something I can't possibly do on my own. I cannot accurately teach your truth without the empowering of your Holy Spirit. And we can't receive it, understand it, and apply it without the empowering of the Spirit. So, Father, I pray today the Spirit would fall fresh upon this never-to-be-repeated gathering, helping us collectively and individually to hear what the Spirit wants to say to us, and then help us to respond with appropriate faith. As always, we pray these things for the honor of Christ, for the welfare of His people, for the sake of our mission in a broken world. And we pray them in Jesus' name. 
Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice to our hearts today, may the Lord be with you. Have you ever felt trapped in a seemingly hopeless situation that appeared to contradict God's love for you and God's promises to you? I suspect anybody who's been following Jesus for any length of time would answer that question in the affirmative. Because while we wish it were otherwise, we recognize that life in a fallen, broken world often presents us with faith-challenging, seemingly hopeless situations. We also understand we are involved in an intense, unrelenting spiritual battle against forces who are bent on our destruction. What we may not fully grasp is there are times when the seemingly hopeless predicament we're facing may have been orchestrated by our best friend in the universe for our ultimate eternal welfare. It may have been orchestrated by God himself. And in today's story illustrates, when that's the case, our response will either boost our confidence in a loving God or suffocate it. And our response will be influenced by how, and more importantly, when we choose to sing and praise God. Or in the case of some of you, when and how you choose to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now, with that, let's look at our story. Just hours after watching God bring Egypt to its knees, just hours after they had stepped across the threshold, stepping out of slavery and into freedom, just hours after they had received an unexpected financial windfall from plague-weary Egyptians who just wanted them to go, The people of Israel found themselves in a situation that appeared to spell their certain destruction. Before them lay the waters of the Red Sea. To the south, impenetrable mountains. To the north, an Egyptian garrison. And to the west, behind them, the approaching chariots of Pharaoh's army. They appeared to be classic sitting ducks. And that had to be a very tough pill for them to swallow. Because for the first time in their lives, they had recently allowed themselves to dream. For the first time in their lives, they had allowed themselves to entertain thoughts of independence, of a better future of self-determination. And now they looked on the horizon and they see an approaching nightmare. It appeared as if their dreams had been a cruel hoax. They appeared ticketed for either mass genocide in the wilderness or a forced return to Egypt and slavery. Now, given those circumstances, as you might expect, it didn't take long for a tsunami of panic and despair to wash over them. And I suspect that despair was particularly raw and ragged-edged because hopelessness 
is most bitter and most deadly when it comes fast on the heels of hope. Satan knows that. That explains why some of his most severe attacks in your life will come quickly on the heels of some encouraging spiritual breakthrough or spiritual progress. But there's something that Satan repeatedly overlooks. He overlooks the fact that God often uses the stubbornness of evil for our gain and evil's loss, for Satan's loss and our best. And that was about to happen at the Red Sea. Back in Egypt, God had again hardened the stubborn, self-hardened heart of Pharaoh, leading him to reverse his decision about letting his slaves go, leading him to tell his armies, go bring them back. As incredible as it would have sounded in that moment, God did that. God orchestrated that for Israel's benefit. How so? God knew that they weren't fully ready for their newfound freedom. They weren't ready to live in total freedom. And they weren't ready for the next chapter of their life. And he knew they wouldn't be ready until they recognized this fact. We can't move forward with God until we're convinced we cannot move forward on our own. God had made that clear to Moses earlier at the burning bush. Somebody once noted that the life of Moses can be divided into three 40-year chapters. The first 40 years when he was raised as royalty in Egypt and taught that he was really somebody special. The next 40 years when God took him into the wilderness and taught him, Moses, you're nothing special. And the final 40 years when he performed miracles because by then he knew only God is special. We can't move forward with God until we're convinced we can't move forward on our own. And again, Moses had learned that earlier. Now it was time for Moses' people to learn it, and the classroom would be the Red Sea. God wanted them to learn that faith isn't self-improvement. It's God replacement. Our faith doesn't remove our human limitations. It simply attaches them to an unlimited God. And God's people needed to recognize that. They wouldn't be able to conquer the land if they didn't. And that recognition was not going to come to them as the result of one great sermon on the basis of words alone. It was going to require a God-sized experience to drive that point home. And God was about to give them a God-sized experience. It was intended to teach them that the new life God offers us can't be constructed on the foundations of our old life. Now let me expand on that. These people were only hours removed from generations of slavery. It was all they had ever known. It was their only reference point. And slavery is built on a foundation of demonic lies in the souls of its perpetrators, and it births demonic lies in the souls of its victims. And demonic lies are particularly stubborn. Demonic lies don't die overnight. 
The fact is they don't die at all without sufficient repeated evidence to the contrary. See, much of what Scripture calls growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, maturing in our faith, requires that we identify and then reject the stubborn, demonic lies that for too long have shaped us, shaped our thoughts of God, shaped our thoughts of ourselves, and shaped our expectations. And some of those lies will not be recognized until God allows us to find ourselves in a place of no hope apart from Him. That's why those who are paying attention to what God is up to in their life will eventually learn that momentary despair and confusion are often early indicators of God at work. Now, we tend to see them as indicators God's forgotten us, indicators that we've perhaps moved away from God. But despair and confusion can be indicators God is at work because despair over our weakness can drive us back upon God's strength. Confusion about our circumstance can drive us back upon God's wisdom and His goodness. Well, in their despair and in their confusion... Moses' countrymen overlooked that important reality. And they overlooked another reality. They overlooked the fact that they were in that place, not by accident, but by divine appointment. God had distinctly, clearly led them to the exact spot where they found themselves. You remember, he led them daytime with a pillar of cloud, led them through the nights with a pillar of fire. How practical is God? When you're in a hot desert, you want cloud cover by day. When you're in the cold of the desert night, you want somebody to light a fire. God took care of both things, but he also led them to that exact location. In addition, he had given them promises that made their recaptivity or their death impossible. And those two realities remind us of why it is so important in your life to seek God's leading prayerfully and carefully and then follow it diligently. Because if you find yourself in a hard place because God has led you there, you know that when God leads us somewhere, it's always for our ultimate gain, even if it's initially a very hard place. But Israel hadn't learned that yet. So they quickly began to sing what I call the Red Sea Blues. It would become a favorite for that group of people. They found a young man in their midst. I I believe his name was B.B. King. (laughs) They heard he was particularly adept at playing in a minor key. And they said, lay down a vamp for us. Make sure you flatten all the sevenths. And, and, and we, we want to sing this song. We were better off in Egypt. They're going to bury us here. And they sang it. It quickly rose to the top of the charts. And their mournful lyrics testified to the fact that past pains office make, uh, often make us pessimists, even when we know God. Years of slavery had taught these folks to expect the worst. 
So despite their miraculous liberation, miraculous provision, God's promises, they did exactly that. They anticipated the worst. They anticipated death. And even Moses struggled. Now, he assured the people that God was going to defeat their enemy, but then he quickly went to prayer and began to plead with God. And I love God's response. He basically said, dude, I don't want to hear it. There are times when we need to pray, and then there are times when God doesn't want to hear us pray. He doesn't want to hear us pray when he's already told us what he's got to do and we're doubting it. Prayer as verbalized unbelief is not something that God enjoys. So God said, stifle. I've got this. You should know that. Now, in fairness, nobody in Israel knew what was going to happen next. The book hadn't been written. It would be centuries before Charlton Heston would emerge on the silver screen and part the seas. But we know what happened next. God opened the sea to his people and then closed it again upon the Egyptian army. And in response, the people got their praise on. This is where Millie Rock actually had its start. The people began to dance. They began to sing. They got out their instruments. And the lyrics they sang were bold and confident and God-honoring. The same folks who had been terrified just moments earlier confidently said, when the people of Canaan hear about this, they're got to be terrified. And they were right. It would take them far too long to get to Canaan, but when they finally arrived and the Israeli spies spent the night in Rahab's house, you remember how she greeted them? Where have you guys been? We heard about you and what happened out there a long time ago. We've been waiting for you. Now at that point, as they sang, it appeared their persistent pessimism had been cured. It appeared they had come to a defining moment. But again, appearances can be deceiving. For despite their God-honoring words, their confidence was not in God. Their confidence was in their circumstances. That's why I earlier highlighted the words, when Israel saw, then Israel sang. Do you hear it? When Israel saw, then Israel sang. Israel sang a song of recognition, not a song of anticipation. Big difference. They sang after the miracle, after their deliverance, not before. If you examine their lyrics, it was the right song, but they sung it on the wrong side. If they had sung those same lyrics about God as their defender and a mighty warrior and protector, as they were standing facing the Red Sea, it would have ignited their faith. It would have birthed hope in their hearts. But singing it after the miracle rather than igniting their faith simply illustrated their stubborn doubt. And what happened next testified to how stubborn their doubts were because just three days later, Later, think of it, three days later, they came to a place called Mara. And there was no potable, drinkable water there. The waters were contaminated. And there, despite getting their praise on just a few days earlier, they immediately called B.B. King out 
had him lay down a few licks and began to sing the Red Sea Blues. Because they hadn't conquered doubt at the Red Sea, they had merely disguised it with a thin veneer of praise. They shouted on Sunday, but by Wednesday evening prayer meeting, they were back to grumbling and doubting God. And sadly, from that day forward, that generation of Israelis were beyond learning anything from God. They faced four great tests before they arrived at the boundaries of Canaan, and they failed them all. And I want to remind you, God didn't test them so that he could find out what was in them. God already knows what's in all of us. God tested them so that they could find out what was in them and deal with it appropriately so that they could turn their barriers into blessings. But they, pa- they failed all four tests. And it reminds us that if we don't move forward in faith, what do we do? We move backwards. There is no status quo in following Jesus. You're either moving forward as you follow Jesus or at some point you're saying, I really don't want to go any further. This is starting to get a little uncomfortable. I'll just hold here. But you never hold there. If you don't move forward, you start to drift back. And our singing, our praising affects our movement. If we refuse to sing on the side of testing, we'll murmur at every test. The timing of our praise affects the direction of our following. Now, given Israel's stubborn habit of singing on the wrong side of tests, it should come as no surprise when they finally get to Canaan and it's time to conquer the land, they said, no way, Jose. Earlier, as they were singing the blues, they had requested that they would die in the wilderness And God finally granted them their request. He sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years until everyone in that generation had died, save for a few folks who kept their faith in God. Now, it's never good to close with a bad example. So let's shift gears suddenly. That's called a smooth transition. Let's shift gears to a positive example. Because Scripture has a lot of them, but none more positive than Jesus himself, the Messiah of Israel. Jesus stands out in Scripture as somebody who sang the right song, and he sang it on the right side. Because Matthew informs us on the night of his betrayal, as he was about to eat with his disciples, when he broke the bread, he gave thanks. It's been my privilege to speak those words thousands of times, overseeing the table with God's people. And and I want to tell you sincerely, every time I repeat those words, he gave thanks. I'm just amazed because Jesus knew what was coming next. He knew how hideous it was going to be. He had seen people die on a cross. But he knew his death was going to be compounded by the fact he was about to take the sins of the world upon himself. Yet he gave thanks. 
And then we read, when the meal was over, he led the disciples out into the night singing a hymn. And we know what they would have been singing as Jews on that evening. They would have been singing Psalm 113 and 114. If you'll look them up, Psalm 113 is a psalm of praise, as is Psalm 114. But Psalm 114 recounts the miracle at the Red Sea and the miracle of God providing water out of a rock at a place called Mara. So unlike those who had failed their tests in places like the Red Sea and Mara, Jesus passed his test thanking God, singing, remembering those places. Jesus sang the right song and he sang it on the right side. And with all due reverence, I suspect in his humanity, it ignited his faith for the suffering that laid ahead of him. So contrary to what we're tempted to assume, seemingly hopeless situations cannot keep us from God's best. They are often invitations to God's best. And contrary to what we might assume, game-changing miracles won't automatically ensure God's best in our life because the Scriptures are full of examples of people who saw dramatic miracles and walked away unchanged or walked away even deeper in unbelief. No, God's best is experienced by those who allow the Holy Spirit to teach them the right song and who allow the Holy Spirit to empower them to sing the right song on the right side. Anybody can sing after a miracle. Doesn't take any faith whatsoever. All it takes is memory. But it takes faith to sing. When it's impassable here, impassable here, impassable here, and they're coming back here. But anybody who will sing and honor the Lord in that time will discover God put them there to learn a life-changing lesson. And as they sing, the lesson will be learned. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father... We struggle to trust you when everything appears to be hopeless. We have no problem singing after miracles. (laughs) We're pretty good at that. But we're prone to sing the blues before the miracles arrive. And it seems no matter how many times you show your faithfulness, we're prone to make doubt our default setting. Lord, help us with that. We need your help with that. Help us to take this simple story as a powerful reminder that if we want to discover what you're up to in our life, if we want our dreams to become realities, if we want to put away the mind of slavery after we've been delivered from slavery, We've got to learn to sing the right song and sing it on the right side. Father, it's been noted that it only took you 40 hours 
to get Israel out of Egypt, but it would take you 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Lord, as you work faithfully to get our spiritual Egypts out of us, help us to sing the right song on the right side. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.